Today's guest was diagnosed with heart failure at the age of 17 when her heart stopped after a routine appendix operation. Since then, she's also been diagnosed with a cyst on the brain and also a form of arthritis, but you wouldn't know it. Her sunny disposition and her positive attitude on life is remarkable and in no way reflects the fact that she's facing a heart transplant in the next five to 10 years. I'm so looking forward to bringing this episode to you and I cannot wait to share the positivity that this guest brings. Ladies and gentlemen, Asha Griggs. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. That's okay. So what intrigued me about your story was when I had sort of what what I noticed was that you had heart failure at a really young age. So what happened? Tell me about the story. So when I was 17, I was admitted into hospital with appendicitis um, and eventually they decided to remove my appendix. Everything went really well. But then whilst I was in the recovery room, I actually suffered a cardiac event and my heart rate went through the roof and then it completely stopped. And so I was very fortunate to be at the hospital at the time. So they were obviously able to revive me and bring me back. And from there, it led to a lot of tests and everything like that because technically it shouldn't have happened. And so after lots of tests, I was then diagnosed with a form of heart failure called cardiomyopathy. Was it the medication that triggered it? Like what triggered your... Um, heart to spike and then sort of they're really unsure so technically it's congenital heart disease so I've theoretically had it my entire life it just wasn't present on any testing up until that stage um, which was very present in the fact of I had already gone through a few health hurdles by that stage which included testing of pretty much everything and up until that point no one had been able to detect that I actually had any sort of heart defect, let alone the full-blown heart failure. So what is what was it called, cardiomyopathy? Myopathy, yeah. So what is that? It is a form of heart failure and essentially how my cardiologist back then described it to me as a 17-year-old was my heart looks like spongy Swiss cheese. So it's obviously bigger than it's meant to be and it's a bit holy. And the muscle, instead of being that nice lean muscle like you see in diagrams and things like that, looks like a spongy piece of Swiss cheese. Um, so because it is larger than it's meant to be, it means my mitral valve doesn't actually work correctly because the space between where it's meant to join is too large. And then obviously it also impacts on all my blood flow and all those sorts of aspects because my heart has to work many times harder than an average heart to be able to do the required functions for life. So if your heart has to work harder than normal, what are the implications for that? Because you were 17 when this all happened. Yes. Uh, At the time, because a lot was unknown um, and a lot of things, even though they were 100% sure this is what I had, a lot of things didn't quite line up with symptoms and various things, and that is the case still to this day. They keep telling me I'm very special. Um, don't you love that when doctors say that? We don't know why. You're just a special yeah. case. 
<laughs> yeah. And I was like, yep, cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but what it meant was because of all the unknowns at the time, I was told I had to stop everything. So obviously I was allowed to finish school. Not that I had much left at that point in time. But you were a couple of weeks away from, from finishing, weren't you? You in your final yes. year. When I finally went back a couple of weeks later, I went back just to do my end of year kind of celebrations, my formal graduation muck up day where we obviously all got dressed up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Had you done your exams, your final exams? No. So I had those in November of that year. Yeah. Um, When did this happen? What month of the year? So you you completed your exams as well? Yes. Okay. Wow. Um, I had struggled a bit in school due to my other health underlying conditions, so I was very much determined to finish completely and kind of, again, defy odds because a lot of people, despite the fact I was academically academically smart I was missing a lot of school so a lot of people did not expect me to achieve the way I did and then obviously after everything went down with my heart there was even less expectation for me to actually do those final aspects of my final year of high school and I've always been one of those people where I don't like to live by other people's expectations or thoughts about what I should and shouldn't do so it definitely gave me a big drive um and it it was harder than it probably should have been because of all the underlying aspects Mm. and then but at the same time I think it gave me a bit of a window especially at that age to forget about everything else and just like no this is this is what I'm doing right now and so I definitely found I didn't really process what was going on until later on in life all that had really processed was you can't dance you can't go to the gym you know and all those kind of aspects of my life that I had to stop I just in my brain I was like okay I need to stop doing those but you know I need to I need to finish school and I kind of went on a one-way mindset of I'm getting this done and I don't really care what else is going on so are you still unable to exercise now yeah no uh through the years now, so about six, six and a half years since uh-huh. being diagnosed, I worked a lot with my medical teams as they changed and things like that and worked really hard to understand everything. And I got to a stage where it became apparent that I wasn't like everyone else, even everyone else who may be suffering from the same condition. I, I wasn't hitting any of those markers that I should have been in theory and again I'm I'm very driven and so after a lot of research and understanding I realized my lifestyle could greatly impact the overall way that this played out and a big part of that meant having that healthy lifestyle so exercising being really strict in my diet not only extends the amount of time before I need to have a transplant, it also enables me to live somewhat of a normal life, for lack of a better term. So I exercise a minimum of three times a week pretty strictly because I have seen the impacts that that makes and my doctors have seen how much of a huge difference it made since I went back to exercising about two years ago versus that time in the middle. So what were the markers that you were 
not hitting that everybody else so on a scan of my heart when they do the ultrasound it looks really 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 bad like really not great um but when i do the physical test i should only be able to score up to about a 14 or 15 which is when they start looking at okay we need to be transplanting but i actually score my last score was a 21 it is slowly obviously dropping down i do I think my first test was about a 25 uh, mm-hmm. it is gradually reducing which is a bit of reality unfortunately mm. um but the two tests despite being foolproof essentially and they're correct and all that they don't they don't add up so the aspects of the echocardiogram that show my blood flow it doesn't match with my physical capabilities and when you were saying the scan looked really bad that that was the ecg or the ultrasound that was looking really the ultrasound so when it's when you say that it looks really rubbish, what do you mean by that? Like what makes it, the blood flows through the heart, how it pumps? Yeah, and how the muscles are contracting and the fact that you can visibly see that that muscle is a lot thicker and spongier and they actually run audio when they do your echocardiogram. It's a very, very strange thing to listen to mm. and it should sound pretty much like a nice flow for lack of a better term. And when you listen to mine, it kind of sounds like when you listen to the water in a washing machine where mm. it, it's a lot of swishing and not just flowing. So you can kind of hear it hitting stops, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, instead of just that nice, you know, kind of flow that should be going along with your heartbeat. So when this event happened... How did you find out about it? Because you would have been unconscious, I would imagine. Had yeah. you woke from had you woken up from the anesthetic in recovery, or were you still under? So it was all quite surreal, and it took me a, a couple of years before I realised. So when I was in the recovery room, I remember starting to come to, and then I remember that feeling of my heart racing and all the alarms going off, and then I remembered nothing. And there was a few years there where I just assumed I imagined it all and you know radio um and up, up until that stage I hadn't quite understood what had happened all that had really sunk in and things like that was I now have a heart condition and it wasn't until probably about two years later or so that I realized and I guess accepted the fact that I actually suffered a full cardiac event that had led to my heart stopping so when you're saying a cardiac event, is that different to a heart attack? It's very similar. It's just not classed as a full-blown heart attack. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, like a blockage and then? Yeah. Very. Okay. So I just kind of decided to Is it more electrical? Working. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's interesting that you're saying you didn't realise until two years afterwards because I would have imagined that at the point of you waking up and recovering someone would have sat you down and said okay your heart stopped was there a white light was you know like talked you through the this was a serious thing situation yeah it was very strange because I when I woke up to start with they were more so concerned with the fact I had obviously just had surgery for my appendix and all that And being the age, I was very concerned at the time that they would have ruined my piercing that's in my stomach when they did the slices (laughs) for my appendix. Um, And that was like my thing at the time. I woke up, I was like, Mom, did they they ruin my like 
piercing. She's like, no, you're fine. Um, <laughs> and then just before I left, I did say there was some abnormalities, so we're going to have to do some tests. And that was essentially all I was told. Um, that was it, abnormalities. Yeah, obviously my parents were aware, but being under 18, it wasn't, it was kind of a situation where it was left up to them to a degree to how they wanted to approach it. Right. Um, and again, especially when I, I was diagnosed and I was sitting with that cardiologist those weeks later, I, I was definitely in a bit of denial. So I wasn't absorbing the information that was actually being given to me. And to a certain extent, I didn't want to know. So even the information that was being fed to me, was kind of just going straight over the top of my head. Um, and just certain key parts that sunk in versus probably some of the important stuff. Was that because you hadn't fully been told? So it wasn't sinking in because you didn't really understand what was going on? I think so to a certain degree, as well as up until that point, I'd had a few struggles with my health and things like that. And on a mental level, I think it was my, my body started going out. This is too much. This is too much to go that's going on. I don't I don't want to know. I don't want to deal with it. I want to pretend like everything is peachy and that, you know, this is just a formality and bit of a lifestyle change, not that it was actually something significant. Have you had conversations with your parents subsequently and said why? Like would you have wanted to know earlier? I honestly, especially given the timing, I don't think I would have wanted to know. Um, I think that I had to be at a certain stage where, although obviously it had been said in passing and in conversations with the specialists and whatnot, I needed to be at a stage that I was willing to accept the situation for me to even hear things that were being said. Hmm. And so... You mentioned that with your testing, um, your physical capability testing, that you're at a 21 and until 15 you get onto heart transplant. So is that sort of where it's inevitably going to end up, needing a heart transplant? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and when my care got transferred in 2016, I was originally just a cardiologist and then uh, as things got worse in 2016, I got transferred to the advanced heart team here in WA so instead of a sole cardiologist I actually have some of the states and some of the country's best cardiologists in a team along with other specialists that kind of just put in their two cents that take my take care of me and my conditions and everything like that uh, and so when I did get transferred there the first thing they did say was you will need a heart transplant they're like but the question is going to be when five years versus 10 years, it's one of those, it's going to happen. Obviously, the longer we can put it off and the longer that I can live a life that is still worthwhile living with my own heart, the better. That's a pretty heavy reality to come to. How old were you when you were having that conversation? So 2016, so I would have been 19. So that's young. Yeah, it was it was quite a lot. 
and then that would have been August 2016 and then I had my first official surgery in November of the same year. So what does that surgery look if you're not having a transplant what does that surgery look like in the meantime? What so are they doing? The surgery I had in 2016 was for them to ins- essentially install a internal defibrillator it sits on the left side of my left ribs. It's quite a big chunky thing. Is it the same as a pacemaker? Not quite. So it's not constantly managing my heartbeat. It's mm-hmm. there and it's wired in and it monitors. And then if my heart rate goes out of this preset safe zone, it will then uh, administer an electric shock to try and shock it back into place. Has it happened? No, thankfully. I'm so thankful because I don't think I really want to experience that. That yeah. I have been lucky enough to not experience it. But because of there still being so many unknowns at the time and now, the decision was made to install it as a precaution because they had no idea how it was going to progress or what could happen up until that stage. Hmm. You mentioned that you had some other health issues earlier on before you got diagnosed or before you had this issue with your heart. What were they? So in September of 2010, I think it was about 13, um, I'd always suffered from migraines since age 10. It's just genetically it was going to happen. And then in September of 2010, I actually suffered from a migraine that lasted about two weeks. And after various doctor's visits, my mum was not very impressed that we'd gotten nowhere. So she did take me to the hospital and they did all their scans and everything and it actually turned out that I have a cyst that's about two centimetres in diameter in the central glands of my brain. It's called a pineal cyst. It's benign, so it's not growing or anything like that and it was determined in the months following that that they were just going to monitor it because it was a lot more risky to remove it. Um, But obviously there being a bubble in the centre of your brain it's going to have some sort of impact. Is it a pineal cyst that's sitting in the pineal gland? Correct, yes. What is the pineal gland responsible for? What does it do? So it's responsible for things like the production of melatonin, which obviously helps you sleep and those aspects. And it's been questionable what else it may impact. And I saw neurologists and oncologists throughout my teen years And Mm. a lot of them were pretty persistent on the fact it was what was causing the significant migraines. And essentially what it meant was I was having a migraine two, three, four times a week throughout my whole of high school. And it wasn't like a small kind of low-key migraine. It was to the point where I wouldn't be able to see. I would be throwing up and I'd be really ill as well as in a lot of pain. And so the pineal gland regulates a lot of different hormones and things like that, but a big one being your melatonin. And needless to say, it meant I've always had drastic issues sleeping, Mm. which again doesn't help when, you know, if you're overtired, you're more likely to get something like a headache or a migraine. So all partnered up, it was was a bit of a mess. Um, And like stress levels and things like that were sitting high because of the impact but at the end of the day, they're like, it's too risky to take it out. 
so they just left it and by the time I had my surgery in 2016 I'd had 30 MRIs so you did get it taken out no it's still there so when I had my defibrillator installed in 2016 it meant I was no longer able to have an MRI because obviously the magnets and the metal and so my mum and I because you know we're a bit curious we went through all we keep all our own files as well as everything my doctors have just so we have everything and yeah track everything and yeah we actually counted and worked out from 2010 2016 I'd been through 30 MRI machines do you want it out back then I probably would have said yes because during that time when you also add in being a teenager so your hormones are going to be out of whack anyway. Mm. It was something I really, really struggled with. However, as I've gotten older and obviously things have adapted in my body and various other things have obviously changed as well, I don't, although I do get migraines and when I do get them, they are Terrific. fairly catastrophic. Yeah. But I don't get them anywhere near as much now and I actively work and take things like natural therapies and whatnot to help me with my sleep and my stress levels and all those sorts of things. So as I've gotten older, I've learned how to counteract the impacts of it. And certainly now looking back and thinking about the fact if I had brain surgery back then, could that have led to what my removal of my appendix did? Would that have triggered whatever it was for my heart condition to actually react would I've actually made it through that surgery and the doctors would have agreed it would be very unknown if they had done it back then if I would have actually made it through knowing what they know now with my heart. So are you advised now not to have any surgeries Obviously, you're going to have to at the point of having the transplant, but is that now like all of the surgeries are sort of off the table? Yeah, it's a lot of having to check with everything. Um, But as an example, something as simple as I need to have my wisdom teeth taken out. I've been putting it off because I really don't want to do it. Um, So obviously, I have to check with my heart team before I can do anything even as basic as that. And I'm not allowed to go under general anaesthetic to have my wisdom teeth removed because it's too risky. I have to go under twilight and have it done that way because mm. the risk of going under general anaesthetic and the impact that has, not including any of the other aspects, is a lot greater. And also having to make sure I have the right specialists are doing things like that because inevitably, because of my condition and the long list of medications I'm on, I bleed a lot easier than everyone else. Um, and so it's all those kind of interacting aspect of any sort of surgery that then put it into a higher risk category versus, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go have my wisdom teeth taken out, you know, casual. Are you on warfarin and stuff like that? I am on something called a Pixaban, so it's not quite as brutal as warfarin, thankfully, because I can be a bit of a klutz. However, it's a similar concept without being quite as full-blown um so I bruise really easily I'm one of those people where I'll wake up and be like oh where did that bruise come from and I've always got bruises 
and they just turn up and I couldn't tell you where they came from or anything like that but because of obviously my blood flow and being on blood thinners amongst other things I breathe easier if you know when you just slip when you're shaving your legs and you get that little tiny really shallow nip Mm. I actually have to put a band-aid on and then change that band-aid because it will just keep bleeding wow oh Asha that's a lot to deal with when you're so young and then having the heart situation on top of that. When you sort of had the final dawning of this is what happened and, and so forth, how did you deal with that emotionally? Because it sounds like you were 19 sort of when it all dawned on you and you came to the reality that you had where well, your heart stopped. How did you emotionally deal with that? Because it's a lot. It definitely, it was a lot. And up until that stage, so for probably the first, from that 17 to just before I turned 19, I had let the situation rule my life. So I wasn't doing anything. I was working, obviously, and I had a boyfriend and that was it. Okay, I wasn't doing anything else. Um, and then I actually had one of those moments, as you do, that wasn't even relative to my heart, where I finally left my high school boyfriend after coming to some personal realisations of he was not a nice person and various things, I moved back home. And so from there I went into this other phase of, well, oh, well, screw it all. And I started gymming twice a day every day and I was going out partying and eating whatever I wanted and everything like that. And then obviously come August 2016, things got quite drastically worse and that was when I was transferred and the conversations got a lot more serious. And it did take a while to finish processing the information, but also I had started listening because having that moment of ending up in ICU and things like that kind of triggered that moment of I need to be more serious about this situation. I need to understand what's going on. And it took a long time just to process it and a lot of conversations because I'm I like to know things. So I'm much like my father and if I want a new car, I will research and find out everything I need to know and want to know before I would purchase that new car. And it essentially became the same thing. Once it had started settling in, I kind of tried to deal with it by trying to control it, which obviously is not realistic because there is no way to control that situation. But in my head, I was like, okay, I'm just going to know everything I could possibly know. So I went on this venture to make sure I I knew everything and I could understand what was going on. Obviously, it dawned on me probably about six months later that it's not possible for me to know everything and knowing everything isn't going to change the situation. You brushed over a point that I want to go back to because you said that you came to a point, ended the relationship, you came to a point when you were sort of stuff it. You're in, you're a teenager. You're sort of partying, which I get. Like everyone parties when they're early twenties and teenagers and stuff. But you ended up in the ICU. How did that talk me talk me through those events where you ended up in the ICU? So obviously, I'd done a lot of exercising, a lot of partying, a lot of just really eating whatever I want. I've always been very lucky. I have a good metabolism, so I I was just like, oh, 
I'm just going to eat everything. You're one of those people. <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, yeah, are we right? Um, <laughs> later realized that is not the case. But back then I was like, cool, wicked. Um, in July 2016, I started dating my, at the time, new boyfriend who was now my fiancé. Uh, and, again, we were having a great time and all those sorts of things. And a month later, um, I'm very thankful. I knew my partner before I was dating dating him and uh, for about nearly 10 years by that stage and the family and everything like that. And I went through this a few days where I was in, I was in so much pain. Like I was getting pain radiating through my chest, my heart rate was going up and down. I was getting lightheaded. I was having trouble breathing and obviously my – partner turned around and said no we need to take you we need to take you to the hospital something's really not right so my in-laws obviously drove us to the hospital um and they pushed me through emergency straight away something that happens when you have a heart condition and you go in with chest pain you don't get to sit back down they take you straight through and then they start checking things and like yeah something's really not right did more tests and I was then admitted into the ICU because I was actually retaining uh, dangerous amounts of fluid. So it just wasn't, my body wasn't processing the fluid. And instead of processing and then obviously you pee it out and whatnot, it wasn't. And it meant the sac that sits around your heart was full of fluid. And I was having all these issues because that fluid was, again, filling around my lungs and my heart. So nothing was able to operate properly. And obviously that's significant enough as it is, let alone when you're already suffering from heart failure. But it was because of the heart condition that this was you were retaining fluid or was it because you were out partying? Um... It, it's safe to say it's a mix between if I was just doing the partying and just, you know, having a good time, it wouldn't have happened. But because of having the underlying condition um, as well as having a high salt diet and things like that, all paired together meant my body couldn't couldn't function it couldn't process everything correctly it didn't have essentially the power to be able to do it and high salt diet actually causes your body to want to retain the fluid because obviously salt can make you feel dehydrated hmm. and at the time because I was going out and doing all those sorts of things fast food was was the thing you'd go out and then you get macros on the way home and then obviously alcohol again makes pretty dehydrated or a dirty savlaki yeah exactly stuff yeah. that is covered in oil and fat and something and delicious exactly <laughs> and so it was great and then you pair it with the dehydration from alcohol yeah and so my body was trying to hold on to the fluid because it felt like I was dehydrated plus all the exercise but normally obviously if you do that your body then eventually once it all comes back to get back to it and you get on with it and your body goes back to normal. Whereas for me, it got to that stage where my body didn't do what it was meant to do and didn't go back to normal. And it became very prevalent at that stage. Obviously, in ICU, I was on morphine for the pain and everything like that because they had to drug me quite a lot to make my body start processing these fluids. It, was, it wasn't a overnight fix. Uh, after being in ICU for a week, I was then transferred to the advanced heart team out at Murdoch in Perth, Western Australia. And they treated a bit more, but it was pretty much under control then. But that's when they started having conversations about going forward and my future care and the implications of lifestyle 
and making sure you are taking your medication and the important conversations that needed to be had, no doubt. But they were also quite a kick in the gut at the time. Um, I was very fortunate, obviously, for that whole whole process. My boyfriend, now fiancé, was there for the whole thing. He slept on the really uncomfortable couches in the ICU room. Oh, we like him. <laughs> yeah, he's good value. I definitely keep him around. He also <laughs> has decided since back then he definitely re- re- uh, realised the hospital that I'm now at because every time I get admitted they bring him a trundle bed instead of sleeping on some uncomfortable couch. So they bring him his own little trundle bed and pillows and blankets and get set up in a little corner of my hospital room every time. But I had that constant support through the entire process. Obviously, my mum is amazing, both my parents are, and they were coming and seeing me all the time. They were there for the whole thing. But it was that peace of mind of having someone there for the entirety instead of just during the day as well that made a big difference. Mm. How has it changed your outlook on life? I definitely value it a lot more. I value the opportunities I'm given and I'm grateful for the things I have been able to achieve to date. I think that if I hadn't gone through such things that I wouldn't quite have the same gratitude to the world or whatever it may be, I wouldn't quite feel the same way and I wouldn't realise how fortunate I am for the way the events did unfold those years ago and how fortunate I am to have the medical care and the support system that I do have now. Hmm. When you say that it's made you a lot more grateful and how does that manifest, though, in your everyday life? So I work really hard. Um, Mm. I'm very driven. I'm even more so driven now than even when I was a kid. And because I am grateful for the opportunities I'm given, it means I'm pushing harder to achieve more because I feel like I need to show everyone that I am worthy of these goals, of these achievements, of those various aspects because I'm aware I I was essentially given that second chance at life back in 2014 where a lot of kids that do suffer anything similar, a lot of them aren't given that second opportunity and they go one day they're perfectly healthy and then they drop and their heart stopped and a lot of the time they don't make it because it's just happened in their backyard and if their parents don't know CPR and things like that, it can be a very unfortunate Outcome. End to the situation. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting that you, you've gone down the more I'm very, um, like I work hard and I'm very determined aspect. Of, the, ter- the determination I'm, doesn't surprise me, but a lot of, like you hear a lot of stories saying, you know, I take a lot more time for family and I don't work as hard and, you know, there's more things to life than career where you've sort of gone, well, it sounds like you've sort of, gone the other way yes I would definitely say I did go the other way also pairing with the fact 
I was fortunate enough to already have an amazing family and have my fiance and things like that. I having that support system, I I definitely wanted to show everyone that I could be more than what was on paper. I think mm. was the reason I did go down the route of wanting to be something special, I guess. Wanting to be successful in various aspects of life because I didn't want to just be known for what was on the paper. Sort of prove everybody that you're more than just a medical diagnosis. Exactly. I I wanted to prove to everyone that I didn't need to live by the statistics or by the numbers. I wanted to show my loved ones, the people around me, my medical teams, anyone who watches me or has anything to do with me that I can be these amazing things and for a lot of it, I was doing these amazing things without people being aware of the underlying condition and, you know, my underlying situation outside of, say, my workplace. And the reason, I guess, a big part of that was because when I started certain parts of my journey when I was about 19, 20, 21, I didn't talk about it. I didn't want people to know or anything like that. And then I got to that stage where I slowly started to share bit by bit which was good. I had so many amazing people that had great reactions, but I also got a lot of people that would turn around and be like, you don't look sick or you don't like, you don't act like you're sick. And, and that was what they got out of the conversation was you're telling me you have heart failure. I don't believe you. You shouldn't do these things. And it became a big part of that's what they think, but I don't want that to be the truth. Well, it sounds like you want to just want to prove people wrong and you don't want to be um, beholden to the diagnosis. Correct, yes. I read that you, in amongst all of this, have a form of arthritis. Is that right? Correct. I have something called ankylosing spondylitis. Well, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it took me a long time to work out how to spell it and I still have moments where I'm like, um, and then I have to Google it to make sure I've spelled it right. I couldn't even figure out how to write pineal, pineal gland. Yeah, that took me quite a while as well, to be fair. I was like, um. <laughs> so when were you diagnosed with this form of arthritis? Let's just call it arthritis because I can't say it. <laughs> it was actually probably about September of 2014. And needless to say, 2014 was not a good year. 2014 um, was like everyone else's 2020, I think. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. And it was not long after I'd been diagnosed with my heart condition. I'd always had back issues. When I was eight, I actually slipped in an empty pool and fractured my tailbone. Oh, lordy. Yeah, bit of a klutz. Um, I didn't realise I did much at the time. And then one day I said to mum, oh, my back hurts. She's like, you don't normally complain. Let's take you to the doctor. And like, oh, you've actually fractured it on like a right angle. Right. And there's not much you can really do. You sit on a donut? Yeah. <laughs> And so needless to say, it never, it never healed properly, so it's still a bit, bit wonky. Not quite the full right angle anymore, but it, it's definitely wonky. And so obviously as you grow, your spine grows too. So it, it did cause various issues. And so for years, all the back issues I was having, all the back pain, everyone's like, oh, it's just because of that. I was fortunate that my GP at the time, especially once I did get to 17, and it was just unending and it was getting worse. He's like, something's not right. So he sent me for my, another set of scans, another set of bloods. 
my information markers are a bit elevated and the people at scan place said, oh no, it's all fine, just tailbone's on an angle. And my doctor got to the point where he's like, something's still not right, I'm going to send you to see a rheumatologist, which is obviously the specialist for arthritis and joints and things like that. So off we went, took my scans and within five minutes of being in the doctor's room with my doctor and a student at the time, they stick my scans up on their light board thing and he actually turns to his student, what can you see? So obviously mum and I are sitting there going, RTO, and she's like, I can see the arthritis throughout the entire spine. And it was that moment mum and I are sitting there going, I have had various, numerous, so many scans done on my back in that time, including that specific one where the reports have come back and said, it's fine. You know, it's just, it's a bit wonky, but it's fine. Where in truth, when the specialist looked at it and his first year student looked at it, they could see all these spots or however it was that actually comes up on the scans of arthritis going through my spine. It's an interesting way of finding out a, a casual comment from a first year med student. Yeah, um, it, it was interesting. And I think in the end it was actually a good experience because it meant it made me feel more validated because I'd spent so many years with, you know, all the people that look at these scans for a living saying, oh, no, you're fine. Um, I, I felt more validated having someone who was at that level be able to identify there was actually something wrong. I'm not crazy. It's not in my head. You know, it is, yeah, there is an issue. Exactly. So you got diagnosed with your pineal cyst at the same time? No, that pineal was in 2000. cyst was 2010. My heart was August 2014 and my spine was September the same year. Right, so just after you finished year 12, after you finished your exams. You did yeah, your spine in diagnosis. around the same area. Yeah, there was a lot of doctor's visits at that period of time because obviously I was going through a heart diagnosis and tests and all that sort of stuff all at the same time. And having heart failure and ankylosing spondylitis, it, it doesn't work together. Every no. treatment you see for ankylosing spondylitis, they're normally injections. I think I've tried about three different ones to this point, so I do fortnightly injections, kind of like an EpiPen auto-injector situation into my thigh. But you get, you get, you know, sent your package or whatever and it, they give you this care package that goes with it, including a sharps container, blah, 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 blah. And then a massive paperwork that obviously comes with having a new prescription medication, then want to make sure you understand it. First thing you see, obviously, in something like that is do not take if X, Y, Z. The first two ones, do not take if you are pregnant. Okay, cool, yep, fabulous, not an issue. You have heart failure. And so it, they, they essentially contradict themselves. So my heart team have to approve treatment for my ankylosing spondylitis. However, I'm very fortunate in the lead cardiologist on my team actually suffers from the same condition regarding the ankylosing spondylitis. So he actually does understand it. Otherwise, most people probably would have just said, well, no, can't do that. That's, lu- that's really lucky, but they're probably putting it on there to cover themselves from a legal basis, the drug company exactly. as well. Hmm. Um, and obviously they had to weigh out the implications and all that sort of different stuff. And it was decided they need to manage my pain and they need to manage it to make sure it doesn't, you know, get worse quickly and things like that. And taking 
things like anti-inflammatories and whatnot is bad for your heart anyway. So weighing up the continuously having to take pain medication versus the injection, the injection was the better option. 2014, obviously you're going through a lot of medical appointments. What's the reality of getting there? Were you driving yourself to these appointments? No. So I got my driver's license in October of 2017. It took me five times to pass my test. It was a, it was a long process. Ash, I don't admit that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very honest about it. I'm so glad that you're in WA and I'm nowhere to take you on the roads. Um, so every time I... For those of you that are outside Australia, WA is on the other side of the country. So it's about a seven-hour flight from where I am, would you say, from Melbourne? Yeah, give or take. A bit more maybe. And all that. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, Australia is enormous. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with Asha being on the the roads. Every time I'd fail, my instructor would be like, I don't understand. He's like, you you could drive perfectly. Why aren't you passing? I don't test well. The stress. And the stress I, gets to you. Yeah, and I can't do it. I'm just like, yep, no, not my thing. Well, I, had, I wouldn't do it again. I had the other issue, Asha. I decided that I was going to go on my 18th birthday. And I got it on my, I got it. And I was like, yeah, I got it first go. But then I couldn't drive anyway because I was, partying because I was 18 and in Australia you can legally drink at 18 so I wasn't able to be on the roads because we've got a zero for when you first get your license in Australia you're on a probationary license which is known as your P's and you've got a zero blood alcohol content that you can have so you can't drink at all and be on the roads so which is a good thing but it meant that I couldn't drink for about a week so I was celebrating my 18th birthday party <laughs> oh no <laughs> So, yeah, uh, there's two ways that you could look at it. It's probably a good thing that you, were, you know, it took you a while because then you, you yeah. were over all that. But um, but at least, um, so who was taking you to, the, my point was who was taking you to the, all the appointments, your, your mum? My mum, yeah. yeah. My mum was there for all of it. Also, being under the age of 18, I wasn't actually legally allowed to go on my own. You need really? to have someone over the age of 18 with you. It's a legality kind of thing because you're still classed as a minor and so you're still classed as your guardian, you know, as the one that needs to take care of you until you do turn 18, then you're still their responsibility. Unless you ask my parents, I'm still their responsibility now. <laughs> you're always going to – you're their baby girl. You'll always be their responsibility. Yes, and I'm an only child, so I'm very fortunate in that factor as well. There was just me. There was just me to drive around and – Throughout my childhood, my mum would always work part-time and things like that as well because her work schedule was based on my school schedule. And then she was fortunate in the fact she could work from home. So the days I would be staying home sick, a couple of days a week here and there and whatnot, she would work from home. Obviously, as I did get a bit older, <clears throat> sometimes she'd go to work and come home and all those aspects. That's interesting that she was allowed to work from home back then because it's not a it probably wasn't a done thing. Well, I know COVID's obviously made it a lot more accessible and, and normalised it, but it wasn't really a done thing back then. <laughs> Correct. Uh, I was very fortunate. And obviously, my mum, the company she worked for, was a family-based company and they'd known me since I was a kid. And so they were very willing to work with her and things like that. And at the time, my dad was working for the same company. He wasn't officially my mum's boss, but he was a, he was 
at a higher level. So mum and him answered the same boss, but my dad was still a higher level. Um, so I was fortunate in the fact of that meant that dad was able to work at home because of his position. So it meant everything was already at home and set up. So mum could just use the setup that was here because he didn't actually like working from home. Well, that's lucky. Yes, it it was definitely very fortunate and very fortunate that my mum's actual boss and things like that were so understanding of everything throughout that whole high school period. Hmm. So where to from, from here, Asha? What's sort of next for you now? So medically, I have to see my advanced heart team every six months and same with my rheumatologist. And I'm essentially, as they put it, with my heart towing the line. So there is nothing else they can do for me at the moment. There is no surgeries that can help and I'm at the maxes on all my medications and things like that. So they're in a situation where they just have to watch and wait. They have to watch, they have to wait, they have to continuously test me and they have to keep an eye on everything because the unfortunate reality is things can change very quickly and because I don't line up with the the general of anything for this situation and this condition. It's a matter of just waiting for whatever it may be for the test results on my physical to drop or my um, levels of air and things like that, my lungs to change. It's a matter of just waiting until it's seen as, okay, we need to we need to transplant the whole thing. So what that does mean is a lot of echocardiograms and the stress test or the physical test, the VO2. And in November, I had my first right heart cap. So essentially I stick a tube down the artery in your neck, run it through the right, heart side, right side of your heart into your lungs to monitor and measure the um, air and all of that sort of stuff going on in there. And it, it, regardless, it means I will have to have more of those going forward because it does present them with an important figure of how things are tracking. So what sedation are you on for that to happen? Are you under a twilight? They gave me a meal of twilight and it really didn't work. Um, but they used local on the area, otherwise I'm completely awake. Right. And it, it's something they do regularly, not for me. And for those that... Sorry, for those that are wondering, a twilight sedation is just a really light, it's not a full, you're not completely, well, you're under, but it's you're not as deeply under. So you're asleep, but you're still quite lightly asleep. Yeah. Yeah. The same one as what they give you when you have a colonoscopy and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, so when people have a heart transplant, they actually have to have this right heart cap done weekly for a certain period of time. And so they just do it completely awake. They obviously use local in the area. Um, and I have a really high tolerance to twilight sedation. So the meal they gave me didn't keep, kick in and halfway through, I'm like, okay, that really hurts. And they're like, oh, do you want more? I was like, well, can I go home sooner if you don't give me more? They're like, yeah. I was like, well, in that case, just finish what you need to do because I want to go home. Wow. <laughs> so you just sucked it up and dealt with the pain. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. In terms of when you hit the 15 marker for your physical, you're at 21 now, which is your transplant um, marker. 
that you need to transplant. What's the process for that? How long once you're on that transplant list? So the transplant list is based on priority. So obviously everyone that's on that list is prioritised. I'm not entirely sure the exact prioritisation process they use, but based on obviously fixed implications on current life and things like that. And it, it honestly depends on, essentially it depends on other people dying for people who are on that transplant list to continue living. Being a heart, it's it's a vital organ. It's not like you can just donate, you know, a part of your liver or a kidney. It, it, it is that vital organ that you need to do anything. Without your heart, you, you can't function. And there's certain there's certain markers though, isn't there? Blood type and what are the yeah. other things that you have the categories that you have to tick to be a match? So it is based on blood type. I believe there is some other genetic genetic but other back end kind of thing and obviously for a heart to be viable it needs to um, meet certain criteria in regards to condition and the person who's died's lifestyle and things like that at this point in time I haven't I, I think I got to that stage where I was like okay do I want to look into it more do I want to really understand it or is it something that I need to leave to a later point, is it going to stress me out if I go out of my way to know more? At the time, I opted for the maybe I don't need to know everything right now and I wanted to, I guess, focus on living versus essentially that that situation because what that situation does mean is if there isn't someone that marks or that ticks all those boxes or if there is not something that is ready available quick enough it could mean that that's it and that means it could potentially mean that is that is the end that is the end of the road you live out whatever is left on your actual heart and if you don't find a match when they require it or in the time frame or whatever it is it that's it I think there's something to be said you know the ignorance is bliss statement not knowing too much about it and then when it comes up then it comes up but uh, but I think it's important for people to be on that donor list to volunteer that um so other people that do have chronic issues have a second chance yes 100%. Um, but that's a it's a really it's a weighty thing to have to live with Asha yes it, it's definitely a big thing to have kind of sitting there um, but at the same time, it's made me a lot more aware of the fact I need to make the most of my now. There's no, oh, maybe I'll do that one day because unfortunately, even though I am only about to turn 24, that one day may not, that one day may not be there. Um, and so it, it did mean over the years it was harder than it would be otherwise to plan a future because you don't know how far ahead you know, you can plan it, it's very unknown. And it's so important to have the right support system because if you don't have someone who fully supports you or understands, it, it is going to lead to issues later on down the track. Have you thought, I know you've said that you don't want to sort of go too far into the process and being eligible and the match process for 
transplants. But have you sort of thought past that point of what it would be like to receive it? I've definitely had moments, I guess. Um, So once I had my surgery in 2016, I had to go to essentially like mini rehab sessions for six months to make sure I had my full movement back and things like that and understood how to read your heart rate and things like that when you're working out and whatnot. And a lot of the people that were in those same sessions were people that had had transplants. And so it it did actually make me realise to a degree there is life past that point. However, it does mean that there is essentially a part of someone else that is now a part of you and it, it mm. is a vital organ and obviously everyone has a difference in opinion or difference in experience and some people have said they received whatever organ it is transplant and it changed them as a person and then other people say oh no you know back to normal carrying on and whatever it may be and so you definitely have those moments where you're like, well, does that mean that I will change as a person unintentionally because, you know, at the end of the day, your heart is that organ. Is having someone else is going to change your outlook? Or some people say it's as simple as they find they like foods they didn't like before and vice versa. So when you say they change as a person, are you saying that, uh, like, w- can you articulate that more for me? Yeah. What are you saying? Because I was thinking that you're talking mindset and then you're talking about food. So, so explain people, to me in more detail what you mean. Some people have said that once they've received that new organ, that some of their personality itself has actually started to change, has started to alter and things like that. It's hard to say if that is because, you know, they have someone else's organ or if it is actually just part of a mindset. They believe that having... Someone else's organ means they're now a different person. But is that just because they're grateful for that organ or are they saying that it's actually been like a shift in personality? I was happy-go-lucky and now I'm more cranky and I so the person must have been more cranky. Like is it that yeah, definitive? Some, some people have said, oh, you know, that person must have, as you said, been cranky or things like that, whereas I personally believe that it it's the process that has changed what their outlooks or what their mindset or what their personality because needless to say going through something like that process it is going to change something um but I have met people who said yeah well before you know I I was scared of spiders and now I have no issue you meet a lot of really interesting people and everyone has their own thoughts and processes and you meet some truly amazing people and I remember meeting this older man who'd been in his 50s or so he was a couple of years post transplant and he'd actually just competed in his first um mini marathon wow and it gave you that point of I can actually still achieve post that point it's just getting to that point that is the battle yeah, it's interesting. I wonder whether or not, so for the spider thing, for for, inst- for instance, I wonder whether it's because, okay, well, I've faced worst case scenario and I've come over that's so everything else now is not going to be a bother to me. But, I mean, at the end of the day, he's Australian and he shouldn't be scared of spiders anyway. 
but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the uh, yeah, like it's it's uh, it's fascinating. I'll have to catch up with you again, and obviously it's not going to be great circumstances if you ever get to that point. But you know, it'd be interesting to see if if that mind shift happens with you. Yeah, I, I definitely think it in its own is an interesting, essentially science experiment. Yeah. Um, and I, I do believe that part of you will change, but I believe it's based on the circumstance and the situation. And gratitude. Yes. I, as I said, yeah. like that moment, although after being straight, after being diagnosed, I would have been the exact same person those years later. I, I did definitely change as a person and parts of me were still, you know, same as I was going through my teens, but then there was a bigger part that was, it was a, it was a change and it was, it made me a different person and it made me who I am. Do they offer you counselling through the process? Not really. Uh, they, they suggest that and if you obviously go, oh, yeah, you know, I, I need help or whatever it may be, the teens are 100% on board. Um, but uh, resources like the Heart Foundation Australia, they do – when you look into it further and things like that, they do offer certain support services and hotlines and things like that. But without actually looking or asking for the help, you won't receive it. Wow, that's interesting. I would have thought that it would have been um, standard. But then I've thought about I've had friends that have had cancer treatments and were struggling and they were like, oh, well, whilst they're in hospital, they were struggling with the diagnosis and and it was, I will give you those those resources once you check out. And it's like, hang on a minute, they're, they're struggling now, not in 10 days when they check out. Of Yeah. yeah it's in, interesting how the health system works. And when I was diagnosed, we weren't given much resource-wise. I didn't start get, getting given resources until my care did change to the advanced heart team. They started providing me with resources and they're the ones who put me onto the Heart Foundation Australia and that is when I became aware of how many resources are so readily available. But in saying that, it means you need to be willing to look for those resources or reach for those resources. And so if anyone else is in a similar situation that needing the resources, what is what are they? Is it Heart Foundation? Yep, so the Heart Foundation Australia, if you just chuck that into Google, it comes up. Um, there are all sorts of things you can find on their website. There are also uh, contact numbers and things like that but they also have a world of information, pamphlets, booklets, and things like that, a lot of which with the pamphlets and booklets, you can normally also get those in physical copies and things like that from normally like your hospitals and whatnot. Sometimes, again, Mm -hmm. you will have to ask for them, but I would 100% hands down say ask for those resources because – They are so important and they do an amazing thing as well. They also do resources not only for people with the conditions, not only for people suffering with heart disease, but they do resources for those who have someone they love who is suffering from heart disease. Because not only when you have heart disease are you going through that, it means your loved ones and those around you are also travelling that process with you and obviously your loved ones want to help and they want to be there and they want to support. But it's the same thing when something goes wrong. You know, you never quite know what do I say or how do I help and things like that. So the Heart Foundation actually provides 
information for people who care for or love someone with heart disease and the things they can do and the things they need to understand, which I think is such a vital, a vital part as well. I noticed online that you've been doing some fundraising previously. Are you fundraising for anything at the moment? I currently constantly have a fundraising page with the Heart Foundation Australia um, mm-hmm. because I obviously did do the My Marathon, which is like a mini event they run every October. In your own time, you will walk, run, whatever you may want, 42 kilometres across the month, so like a marathon, but instead of at once across the period and you fundraise. So this year, well, this year, 2020 my dad completed it with me because obviously me going out walking on my own is not the safest thing because of my condition and whatnot and it was a good Mm -hmm. time to just bond and during COVID it was even better at least it gave us something to do Mm -hmm. but I do have a standing fundraising page that I I do use that I supply to people and things like that and sometimes go out to businesses and whatnot as well which, yeah. So how do, how do people find that fundraising page? So that fundraising page is linked on my Instagram under my link in bio. Uh-huh. What's your Instagram tag? My Instagram is just Asha Grigg, so A-S-H-A-G-R-I-G-G. And the link will also be in my online website slash blog, which is just launching. It is technically live, but still a work in progress so that is also pretty much the same which is www.ashagrig.com so I will try and have all my resources and things like that included on there also hoping to have links for the Heart Foundation and some of the resources they have as well. I'll um, I'll put them all in the show notes of the of the podcast episode as well Asha. Awesome well is there anything else that people need to know or that they need to information? As I said, on my website, there will be links to various information and resources that you can get your hands on regarding heart disease. And although they will be through the Heart Foundation Australia, wherever you live, the information is still the same in the fact of things about your lifestyle and about dealing and about coping with it. I am over time obviously going to be doing a blog that is included in on there. At the moment, there's only stock standard it does go through a bit you know the day that everything happened and over time I'm planning to include things about how my lifestyles changed and different aspects of that so people can get a greater understanding for the things I'm doing so it may inspire or provide them with information to do the same but also there'll be other parts of my life that will be included in on there because as I said earlier I'm very much an overachiever so I, I have big goals. I've been very fortunate that even in 2020, I was able to achieve some of those goals. That's awesome. Um, but again, I, I do have really big goals that I want to I be achieving in my personal life, in my professional life, and then in whatever the middle life really is. That's terrific. The one question that I didn't ask you and I just thought of is you mentioned that at some point you just started exercising. And the doctors didn't think that that was necessarily a great idea. Did you tell them beforehand or did you just do it and then you went in and was like, my, my results are improved? What, no, I, what happened? After researching and things like that, I did sit down with them. I said, I and I open communication. I told them, I, I want to do this. I want to try doing this. And hypothetically, obviously it could, it could help and hypothetically it may not. 
So it was all about doing it within within my personal limitations. I'm yep. very fortunate in regards to at that stage I was already with the advanced heart team and being the kind of team they are and things like that, they are a lot more open to the fact not everything is black and white. And they have always been so supportive and open with the fact of at the end of the day, you're not like everyone else. And at the end of the day, not everyone's the same anyway. So listening to your own limitations and what your body is saying is the most important thing. So if that means you want to exercise and you feel good exercising, that's amazing. But make sure that if you're exercising and you start feeling unwell or your heart starts racing or any of that, you need to obviously listen to that and you need to either stop or take a break. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Asha. Thanks for coming on. Everyone needs to jump onto Asha's Instagram um, and you can follow her there and she's got links to everything, but I'll put it all in the show notes. Chat to you soon. I'll chat to you um, in a few years and see how you're going. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Cheers, Asha. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 